You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Revelations chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning and you'd like a hard copy of the text, you can find one under a seat in your row. And if you don't own a Bible, um, we're just going to invite you to keep that one from us. And so, again, we're going to be turning to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. So when you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence. Glad you are here. I got to just let you know before we get started that my mic is, uh, I got a small head, so these mics don't always agree with me. So if I keep correcting it, just roll with it, all right? Uh, I've been reading that in the Civil War era, 5'7 was like the average man. So I also found out I'm pretty tall back then, so happy for that. Anyways, glad you're here. Let's get started. Um, so like Lauren was saying, we, we've been uh, in this series called Seven, walking through the seven churches of Asia that are found in the book of Revelation that uh, Jesus is writing to through the hand of John. And uh, we got to the last one today. Uh, I get the one that uh, has zero encouragement for the church, so this is good. It's the only one, so we're going to dive right into it. Um, But I wanted to just kind of bring something before we pray and get started. I wanted to bring something to our attention. Uh, So you should have been noticing a pattern. We've talked about this a few times, but there's really kind of three major things that happen. I want to base my points around each um, letter that Jesus writes to uh, the churches, uh, he basically starts off by presenting something about himself. And, and this uh, harkens back to Revelation 1, when John is on the island of Patmos and he's beginning to have the vision and he hears a voice talking to him, telling him to write these things down. He says he turned around, he saw the voice that was talking to him. It was Jesus. And when he sees him, he falls over as though dead. I don't know what really happened there, but he was so shocked at what he saw that he fell over as dead. And then he begins to describe what he saw, which is Christ. And so Christ will hearken back to that and he'll give something about himself is how he starts off every letter to a specific church. Then he'll go through the encouragements and rebukes he has for the church. 
Uh, that's the second part. And so he can encourage them in some things they're doing, rebukes them in other things that they're not doing well. And then lastly, he gives uh, both threats and promises. Threats for uh, if you disobey and continue in your works that you're doing that are wrong and evil. Uh, and then also the promise of uh, those who conquer, right? Those who repent and obey and follow Christ. There's these great promises that Christ gives. So we're going to kind of base the three points around that today with three major questions. And those questions are the following. What does Christ say about himself in this letter? What does Christ say about the church of Laodicea? And what does Christ promise the church of Laodicea? So those are the three things we're going to try to answer today as we walk through uh, the text. And it's always good to remember that though these were written to a specific church in a specific time, uh, these are for us today. This is Christ speaking to his church through various times and seasons um, for us to, uh, maybe a good term is wake up and heed uh, his call to have life in him and to follow him uh, as the church of God. And so that's what we're praying for this morning. So if you would bow your heads with me, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful. We are happy that we get to open it today and hear from you. And God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Everyone right now, Lord, in this room, would you give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. Help us not to be deceived by what we think about ourselves. It's very easy, Lord, to think that we are something that we are not. And as your word will graciously warn us this morning, it is good to see our weakness, to see our need for you, and to see that we could do nothing apart from your grace. And so God, let this be a reminder don't let the word be choked by the cares of this world or stolen by the enemy this morning, but may they be received onto good soil. May we find true repentance and belief and trust in you this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first question is, what does Christ say about himself? Let's look at verse 14 together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus has three titles for himself. One, he's the amen. He is the faithful and true witness, and he is the beginning of God's creation. I want to go through each of these so we can kind of get a feel for what Christ is saying about himself. Uh, first thing, uh, the amen. What does Christ mean when he says he is the amen? He is the final word. He is it. There's no other voice above his that carries more authority. There's no other name uh, by which someone could claim to be the last word. But in fact, Jesus has the last say. He is the amen. He is the seal of all of God's promises throughout the Bible. Okay, uh, as the scripture says, he, uh, every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Christ. Okay, this is why we, when we finish praying, we say amen, right? We're believing in the promises of God through the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us. Amen, so be it, right? And so Jesus is saying, I am the amen. I am the decider. I am the final word. I am the final choice. I am the final voice. It is me. I am the amen. He also calls himself the true and faithful witness. Um, Christ's words are always true and always faithful. There is no hiding from his judgment. 
on your situation, okay? Uh, He knows all. He is in all and through all. It is Christ all the way, and he is always true. So what Christ is about to say to the church at Laodicea can be taken at face value. It is true. It is always true, and it is faithful. And he also calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Um, He is the power by which all things exist. So that beginning of creation, that does not mean that he was the first being created, but rather everything that was created, as the, as the word says, was created by him, through him, and for him, right? So Christ is the very end for which and by which everything exists in this universe. That's a big statement about yourself, right? I was joking last gathering. I said, you know, my introduction would be like, I have an associate's degree, you know, it's pretty awesome, right? Uh, But Jesus' introduction is the most awesome introduction, right? It is, he is the final word. He is the chief end of all things. He is the yes and amen. He is the glorious one. Everything exists for his glory, his honor, his praise, his joy. It is Christ. If there's any word that we should listen to, it should be the words of Christ. And so uh, I hope this helps us perk up a little bit to who's speaking to us right now. It is Jesus. Okay, second question. What does Christ say about the church of Laodicea? So he's got a lot of things to say here. We're going to walk through them as best we can, verse by verse. Uh, So let's hop into verse 15 and 16. This is what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We'll stop right there. So first thing, we've mentioned this several times going through, because he says it's pretty much every church. He says, I know your works. So the one who knows all things, the true and faithful witness, he knows our works. And what this means is not just that he caught them doing something bad, but rather for all of us, Jesus knows everything you do and why you do it. It's a big deal, right? So he knows what you think and why you think it. He knows what you do and why you do it. He knows all things. And so he's looking at Laodicea and he says, I know your works. And he's got nothing good to say about them. Here's what he says. He says, he calls them lukewarm, right? He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I I, I would that you'd rather be cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. So let's define lukewarmness. I think this is important, okay? So um, kind of look at it all as almost a scale. Maybe that's not doing it justice, but, you know, the cold basically means that the spiritual death, right? There's like, there's no, uh, no life, no spiritual life, if you will. And, and then hot would obviously represent maybe a passion for Christ, vibrant life in Christ. But the lukewarmness is this indifference that Christ is explaining, this indifference in the church of Laodicea where things are pretty good, things seem pretty good for the Laodiceans anyways. They feel like things are pretty well, you know, they feel like they're pretty well out. They feel like they're doing their church programs just fine. The sermons feel good. The worship feels good. You name it, right? Like things feel good, but at the core of who they are, there is genuine, disgusting indifference. It's this indifference. It's this lack of caring, if you will. Now, when we're defining indifference and we're talking about indifference, I was trying to think of maybe another word, sorry, lukewarmness, that might kind of sum up a little bit. And I think dullness would be a good word. Um, Dullness kind of represents this lukewarmness. So 
uh, originally I intended to kind of go through maybe some very specific things, but then I thought that may not be super helpful. So I want to give some just general kind of thoughts and questions about dullness, and then we'll kind of move into, because Jesus is going to explain it better than I can, but just to kind of get your mind working. I, I think there's a few things we could ask ourselves about our life in Christ right now. So when we hear the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we sing the gospel, when we read about the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we read about our Savior, we read about our Lord, we hear things like him saying, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, right? The beginning of God's creation. Is your response neutral? Do you avoid alone time with God because one uh, you just don't really commune with God. You don't know what that would be like and it's kind of weird or maybe because you know that if you do, you're gonna have to face the fact that you haven't done it in a long time and that you're really not walking with God on a consistent basis or have a relationship with him. Do, are, are you passionate about the things that you pray about or does things seem generally dull? Now, I'm not saying you're not gonna feel dull. I think we're called to be faithful when we feel absolutely miserable in our spiritual life and that's a good and faithful thing to still pray, to still seek the Lord but this could be a sign of lukewarmness. Do you feel love for lost people? It's a big question for us, right? It's, it's the heartbeat of the New Testament is there is a mission to create worshipers of God. Does it break your heart that people don't know Christ or do you find yourself just transactionally irritated at people rather than weeping for them because they don't know, right? I could go down the list and like I said, I do, my goal is not to create a list, but I want to get us thinking. What does it mean to be spiritually dull? What does it mean to be lukewarm? Now, Christ threatens, he says that because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so there is a genuine, like Christ is nauseated at the lukewarmness of the Laodiceans, right? This language is, is meant to be kind of intense. He's kind of like, takes a drink of the lukewarm water and he spits it out and is disgusted by it, right? This is what Christ is saying. Okay, now, if you've ever drank lukewarm water, I, I used an analogy last gathering and ended up with a bathtub, so I'm not going to go there again. But uh, for this one, I got, I got a better one. Uh, no, but like if you've ever, you know, been on like a, a, a hot day, for instance, right, a cold drink of water is, could be very refreshing, right? Um, but if you get a water that's just kind of been sitting there in the sun, all the BPA just swimming around in that water bottle, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then you take a drink of that, it's pretty nasty, right, when you first take a drink of it. Or if you're in the cold, you have a hot drink, and you think you're just going to get this sweet little Starbucks drink that's kind of been sitting out for a little bit too long without the plug thing in it, so you know it's going to be cold, right? And you take a sip, and it just got cold enough where it's not iced coffee, but it's definitely not hot coffee. It's pretty nasty, right? Um, it can be very disgusting when you're not expecting something, right, or, or whatever, and, and it becomes uh, pretty nasty. Actually, this morning is very funny this happened. I just thought of this, but uh, so I have some weird dietary things, and so I drink bone broth in the mornings, okay, and I make this little, it's going to sound nasty to you, but just roll with it. It's like egg yolk, bone broth, like latte thing that I make. I see disgust. I'm sorry. Anyways, so my son was there, and <laughs> he tried my wife's coffee, and he's like, yeah, that's pretty good. I was like, here, come try this, bub, and he tried it, and I'm not kidding. He just spit it right out in the living room. It was hilarious. So, I don't know why I went on that tangent. It's, uh, we can cut that out. But anyways, that happened. So uh, the point is that Christ is not going to tolerate lukewarmness, okay? He's giving strong language here. This isn't like, oh, that doesn't taste good. This is like, this is strong language. Like, I, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will be disgusted by your lukewarmness, and he should be. Now, we got to explain the heart of lukewarmness, and, and Christ no better person to do it, right? Explains it in verse 17. 
very powerfully. This is what he says. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so the church at Laodicea was probably a more wealthy church. It was a very wealthy city. Um, They were probably a more wealthy church. And they had felt like they were wealthy, prospering, things were good. They didn't need anything, okay? That need is important language. Jesus says uh, that four is connecting, okay? When he says four, you you think you're this, but you're really like this, okay? He's connecting it to the lukewarmness. And he's saying the lukewarmness is stemming from this feeling of I don't need anything. And you have to be able to look at that and say, my goodness, how at risk are we in the American church, living in the West, wealthy as we are, right, at risk of feeling like for some reason we don't need anything. And the physical and spiritual can blend together. Now, clearly this was like a spiritual, I don't feel like I need anything, which is what Jesus is rebuking. So I'm not saying if you have money that you're automatically going to be spiritually, you know, lukewarm. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that, How at risk are we in the Western society? Now, I know some of you may not be able to pay your bills and you feel pretty below the poverty line, but compared to a lot of the world, the things you have access to is unbelievable, right? And Laodicea, they didn't feel like they needed anything. They felt like things were pretty good, pretty status quo, pretty pretty good for them. And then Jesus leans into them and says, you don't see your true condition. And he goes to explain. Let's walk through the things really quick. He says, you are wretched. Now, I know we use that as kind of like a, like a cool term now, but that was not always a cool term. Wretched in the English language means to be basically utterly depraved, right? It's to be altogether sinful and wicked. So they were wicked. They were probably allowing sins into their life and their congregation. They just kind of didn't really feel bad about or abominations to the Lord. Um, pitiable. Christ says you're so helpless on your own that people should look at you and pity you for how helpless you really are. Right? Those are strong words. Um, poor. They thought they were rich. They thought they were rich, but by true standards, they were in poverty, right? They may have had all the money in the world, but by true standards, they were in spiritual bankruptcy. They were beggars in what really matters. He calls them blind They thought they saw the world, religion, and God in the right way, yet they had no idea what they were really looking at. They were totally blind. And then lastly, naked. He tells them naked. When you're naked before people, your shame is uncovered, right? It's a basic human thing. And in the same way, spiritually, Jesus is saying, you are uncovered. You are naked. Your shame is revealed. And I want to point out with this because I know these words uh, are harsh and should seem harsh and maybe seem a little bit too harsh for us, but um, weakness exists in all of us. And seeing your weakness and knowing your weakness is a very spiritually important thing. This is something we lack far too often. You are weak. You are very weak. When you feel strong, you are weak. Right? And when you feel weak, you're still weak. That's the point of the gospel is that you are weak. That's why Paul says things like, I boast in my weakness, right? Because when I am weak, then Christ's strength is shown forth, right? And I'm strong in him, not because I'm strong, but because he's strong and his strength makes me strong. But I am very weak. That's why Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. I will be glad 
in my weakness. So weakness is vital to the Christian life. It's only in our weakness that we cling to Christ and therefore find life, true spiritual life in him. And so Jesus is pointing out, you are utterly weak. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked. You are nothing. Now, Jonathan Edwards in his journals I've been reading through lately, I came across something that kind of speaks to this a whole lot. And it's kind of a long quote, but just hear me out here. Here's what he says. He says, it seemed yesterday, the day before and Saturday, that I should always retain the same resolutions to the same height. But alas, how soon do I decay? Oh, how weak, how infirm, how unable to do anything am I? What a poor, inconsistent, what a miserable wretch without the assistance of God's spirit. While I stand, I am ready to think I stand in my own strength and upon my own legs. And I am ready to triumph over my enemies as if it were I myself that caused them to flee. When alas, I am but a poor infant upheld by Jesus Christ who holds me up and gives me liberty to smile to see my enemies flee when he drives them before me. And so I laugh as though I myself did it when it is only Jesus Christ leads me along and fights himself against my enemies. And now the Lord has a little left me and how weak do I find myself? Oh, let it teach me to depend less on myself, to be more humble and to give more of the praise of my ability to Jesus Christ. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Those are wise words from a man of God who is weak. I love this because we, we look at some of these, you know, if you've read Christian history, you might have some people that you kind of uphold as like, wow, that person was a great uh, man of God, woman of God. They did such mighty things. And the only difference between them and us is them realizing their need for Christ and clinging to him with all they have. That's what makes a great man or woman of God, right? It's utter weakness. It's Christ that does everything. So we should feel like Jonathan Edwards, what a poor infant I am, right? Absolutely helpless. If you ever held an infant, you just feel like, oh my gosh, if I sneeze, this thing's going to die, right? It's just like, it's, it's scary, right? And, and, and we are utterly weak. We're utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. We need to feel that from the bottom of who we are because when we feel that, we cling to him, right? And when we don't feel that, we don't. We feel pretty good. We feel like we're the ones defeating the battles. So Christ is going to give them some counsel. So he says, this is your situation. You, you, you think you're too strong, right? You think you're something. You're not that thing. You're actually this. And here's what he says in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, I think Christ is doing this somewhat sarcastically and tongue in cheek, but here's what he tells them. He says, you think you're rich, you think you're wealthy, you think you're well off, right? Um, You think you don't need anything. And then he tells them that they're actually not that way. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me, right? Gold that's refined by fire, representing the righteousness that's found in Christ, the purity, right? Uh, The pure in heart of those who believe in Jesus. Uh, White garments that will cover your shame and your nakedness. White garments is also clearly an analogy over and over again in the scriptures of Christ's righteousness being washed in his blood, making our garments white as snow. Jesus promises if you conquer, you'll wear these white garments in heaven, right? And then salve 
to heal your eyes, to anoint your eyes so that you might actually see. Now, why do I say it's sarcastic? Because how can we buy it, right? You can have all the money in the world and you can't buy the righteousness of Christ, right? So I think he's taking yet another jab at them feeling like they don't need anything and feeling like they're wealthy and so they're good. And he's saying, look, why don't I counsel you to buy this from me? The point of Christ is that you can't buy it, right? You can't. You can't buy the righteousness of Christ no matter how much money you have. You can't earn the righteousness of Christ no matter how righteous you think you are. It's impossible. So I think what Christ is really saying through that is he's saying, come to me, right? Come to me. You're laboring for all of the wrong things. You're gaining for yourself all of the wrong things that will not help you in your pitiable, poor, blind, naked situation. Rather, I counsel you, come to me, the one who offers free of charge, full of grace, the grace of God to believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? So Jesus says, says, come come to me and get it, right? And so... um, He's basically saying, come be a part of the vine, right? Because when you're off the vine, you'll die. But when you're on the vine, you'll live. And that's the only way to live. And, um, you know, when kind of defining what it means to come to Christ or like what is Jesus calling to? He's calling us to trust. If you look at what the Bible says about faith in the Lord, like having faith, right? This is an invitation to simply trust. I mean, you think about like the, the Romans 4, right, ties in Abraham, right? You think about Abraham. What happened in Abraham's situation? It says that he trusted the Lord. It was accounted to him as righteousness. God gave Abraham all these impossible promises, right? It literally says that Sarah was dusty and he was way too old. It was impossible for them to have a child, but God promised that not only will you have a child, but through you, right? It's going to be this whole nation. It's going to bless the whole world. The promised Messiah is coming. And it says that Abraham, all he did was he simply trusted. And that's all he did. He just trusted the Lord. He said, Lord, you said that's true. I'm going to believe that, right? That's all Abraham did. And it said that was counted to him as righteousness. And then what Paul says in Romans is that we should have that same faith, right? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to trust him, come, trust the real wealth that never perishes, the garments that will not uh, rust or destroy the gold that is so pure it will never fade away, right? The salve that will eternally heal our eyes, our ears, our souls. And he invites us to come and to partake in that. So um, beautiful words from, from Christ. Um, okay, next, he's going to con- kind of continue this theme here. Uh, verse 19 so right after saying this, you know, I, I counsel you to buy all these things from me that you might be really healed and, and really find strength, right? He says, um, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. These are encouraging words from Christ. Now, th- this is quoted in Hebrews, it's quoted in, uh, even in the Old Testament, several other places in the scriptures, you hear this word, those whom I love, I also discipline, right? This is God saying that he does this. Now, this should be kind of common sense for us. I know in our society, it's not popular to discipline your kids anymore. So if you really love them, you got to let them just kind of decide their whole life and not really correct them at all because that would be wrong, right? We know because the Bible and common sense that that's not true, right? If you love your kids, you're going to discipline them, right? Because there's just a lot of things kids don't know, okay? A lot. And they have to be disciplined in order 
that they may find the truth, in order that they may love the Lord, know what it means to serve the Lord, know what it means to be a, like just a good person in society, right? I mean, all of these things. And so what Christ is saying, and this should be encouraging, because he's saying some very harsh things, but he's saying, look, those whom I love, I will discipline. So what's motivating Christ is, the, is love for the church, right? It's his love for the church. He loves us. This is a truth that we preach all the time, but we need to feel it. He loves us. He really loves you. And so he says, if I don't say these things to you, if I were to pretend like you were not naked, pitiable, poor, blind, and wretched, then I would leave you there and you would perish in your sin, right? And Jesus says, that's not going to happen to my bride, right? I will not leave you in your filth, but I will point it out and I'll invite you on how to fix it, right? Invite you to have faith in me. That's what Christ is saying. And so he is saying harsh things, yes, but he's doing it because he loves us. And it would be a very uh, unloving thing, right, for a parent to see their kid going off the deep end, if you will, and not not say anything, right? Just, oh, they're going to make their own decisions. I guess it's fine. You know, a five-year-old can think of it. It'd be unloving, right? And though Christ doesn't owe us any love, that's clear <laughs> from the word, but he does love us. So his resounding answer of the question, why are you being so harsh? is because I love you. I love you, so I have to be honest. I love you, so I have to let you know that you are literally on the precipice of death. And if you do not heed my words, you will perish, right? That's what Jesus is doing for his church. It's a beautiful thing. Now, that's what he says, the church of Laodicea. And now he's going to give the promises. So our third question is, um, what does Christ promise the church of Laodicea? So we're going to look at verses 20 through 22. I'll read 20 first um, because I think this ties into what we just read in 19, kind of flows together. So let's start in 19 and read through 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. I love this promise. Okay, so I want to mention something about it because this promise has been used a lot, I think a little out of context. I want to explain why. This promise was not made to those who don't believe. Okay, so I think using this as an evangelistic tactic is taking the specific verse. Though there might be some underlying truths in what we say, I think it's taking this verse out of context. This verse is meant for the church, right? He's talking to the church at Laodicea. He's talking to professing believers. So when Christ says, behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking, he's speaking to the dull, lukewarm believer. Okay, that's who he is speaking to. So if you find yourself in that camp this morning, he's speaking to you. He's saying, look, behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone opens, I'll come in with him and I'll eat with him. What is he promising here? He's promising that he's going to come in and have genuine communion. There's nothing more intimate than like sharing a meal. Okay, this is why on date nights we go out to dinner, right? There's nothing cooler than sharing a meal with someone, right? And Christ is saying, look, you know, you have been a part of this church in Laodicea for a long time. You've been lukewarm for a long time. You've been coming in, raising your hands, great sermon, great worship, you name it. But there's been no communion with me, the living God, the amen, the true and faithful witness, 
right? There's been no relationship. There's no, been no vibrancy here. And Christ says, look, I'm knocking. I stand at the door. He didn't run away, right? He's there. He's saying, hey, lukewarm believer, I'm knocking, I'm knocking. Where, how is he knocking? He's knocking through his word, right? The word of God, he's knocking day in and day out. As we read the word, as we preach the word, he's knocking, saying, behold, I stand at the door. Let me in and I'll eat with you, right? And you with me. He's knocking through faithful friends uh, that are encouraging us to have life in Christ together. He's constantly knocking through his faithful witnesses, right? Christ is knocking through suffering. This is a big one. Through your suffering and trials, Christ is knocking. Have you ever asked the question, why? Lord, why me? Why am I suffering in this way? Right? And it's, I mean, we're all weak. You're going to suffer, right? You've experienced it over and over and over again. The loss of someone you loved, right? The physical ailments. Do you fill in the blank to your suffering? We ask the question, Lord, why? Because I love you and I'm knocking, right? That's what Christ is saying. Because I love you and I'm knocking. I'm saying, open up and I would come to you, right? The greatest gift cannot be that this life goes well for us and then we die and it's over. It cannot. The greatest gift Christ could give us is himself. And he's saying, I'm knocking through all your circumstances, all your pain, all your tears. I see it. I know it. I keep your tears. I I count every single one of them, right? And I'm doing it because I love you. That you might come to me and believe and trust in me. The only rock worth trusting in. I'm knocking. This is why Spurgeon said this. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I love that line. He was so good at imagery. He's saying, I have learned to embrace the times of my deepest suffering because they throw me against the rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So Christ is calling. He's saying, come, come, open the door, and I will commune with you. And it's in that communion that we find the gold that's refined, the white garments that cover our shame, and the salve that heals our eyes. This is what Christianity is about. This is what the Lord has invited us into. It is not about self-promotion. It's not about feeling good about your life. It's about none of those things. It's about coming to Christ and finding what your soul has been longing for this whole time. And that's what he promises to the church at Laodicea. So if you felt like he was being harsh, I hope you see his love, his heartbeat for the church at Laodicea. He cannot tolerate the lukewarmness for the sake of his name and the sake of those who have called upon his name. And he will not tolerate it in you. I love that Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a truth we can cling to, right? He will not let us stay in our lukewarmness. But the call goes out, just like in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to him and trust him. Last promise, verse 21, 22, he says this. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love this promise. It's so audacious and crazy, okay? Remember where you've come from, right? You are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, naked, deserving of eternal 
the eternal wrath of God, right? That's what you deserve. That's what all of us deserve. And Christ, not only through his conquering on the cross, rescues us by his precious blood and saves us for eternity, but he says, and those who conquer will sit with me on my throne. Could you imagine? That's crazy. To be the dead person that gets brought to life and the poorest of poor, the worst of all sinners, the most wicked person, and you get brought to sit on the very throne of Christ. Now, how can he promise that? Well, I'm glad you asked because if you remember back in the earlier verses, right? He is the amen. He is the true and faithful witness. He is the beginning of creation. He is the conqueror, the mighty conqueror. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors, right? He is the one that has conquered sin and death. I love this text. I want to read it really quick. It's Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Now, this psalm was used as a call and response to the gates of Israel, okay, to remember who their God was. But I love this because you can see this in Christ entering the gates of heaven, a conqueror, right, where he now sits down. It says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is Jesus Christ, the mighty conqueror, mighty in battle, the King of glory. I mean, who better to promise eternal life and it's on his throne than him? Amen? It's a lot more I want to say, but he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I beg you this morning, if you find yourself at all in the camp of lukewarmness, that you would just hear the precious words of Christ to come to trust him. Look, there, there's no saying, oh, you're right, I'm messing up. I'm going to leave here and do better. It doesn't exist. It can't happen. You're so weak. You're so poor. You're so needy. You need him. That's what Christ is leading you to. He's not leading you to try to just do better. He's leading you to feel your need. Feel how much you need him and throw yourself upon him and come to him. That's what he's calling. So I would like to pray together for that this morning. And um, I know Brennan's going to, say this, but there's going to be elder candidates and stuff that would love to pray with you uh, after gathering. And I would just say, look, if you're like, I get it, you know, like I feel needy. I want to come to Christ, but I have no idea what that means. And if I fail to do any type of good job, just come to somebody and ask them. Just anyone who knows, looks like they know what they're doing. Just go ask them and just say, like, talk to me about this. All right. Um, let's pray together this morning. Father, we... We have such need. God, we have such need. We're so weak. And it's, it's so easy, Lord, to, to pretend we're strong. We've learned how to do this. We've learned how to make other people convinced that we're strong. God, we're weak. That's all we are. We're weak. And God, we are so weak that we don't even have the ability in ourselves to realize it and to cling to you. It's all grace. It's all grace, Lord. And so we pray for your grace this morning. May we fall on our knees begging, Lord, to heal us. Like Bartimaeus in the scriptures when he was blind and couldn't do anything. He said, Lord, have mercy on me. And God, you had mercy and gave him sight. How we pray for that this morning. 
Don't let us grow more and more dull. Don't let us be okay and feel like everything's fine. But Lord, let us come to you for life. Because you give it, God, freely. You promise that you have gold refined by fire and garments that cover our shame. Oh, Lord, that brings us joy. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust you this morning. I I know there's people in here that have not felt the life of Christ in a long time. And Lord, I just, I just pray you would bring them out of this death, bring them out of this shame. And God, that you would put them on a rock that will not falter, will not fade, but last forever. Oh God, may we be a people at Providence Community Church that cling to you, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but one through faith in you, Christ. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.